no mai hari mai, na mihi nui ki a koutou katoa. Uh, welcome everybody to the last event in our autumn season. Um, and thank you all so much for coming, um, and especially to those of you who've come to every single session, which I think there might be a few of you. Um, my name is Rachel King, I'm the Program Director at Word Christchurch, um, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Shane Carter to Christchurch. Um, I've got a little bit of housekeeping. I'd firstly like to thank our major funders and partners, Christchurch City Council, Creative New Zealand, the Rata Foundation, Heartland Bank, and Te Runanga or Naitahu. Um, we also pay our respects to the mana whenua of Otutahi, Naitua Huriri. Uh, thanks to the Christchurch Art Gallery, Te Puna Uwaifetu, for hosting us tonight, and to Victoria University Press for publishing this book, um, and to all our patrons, supporters, and volunteers. Um, and a special welcome to our autumn season pass holders, who, as I mentioned before, have come to everything. Um, and also to any of Shane's past band members and fellow musicians, and we promise to be kind. Um, in the event of an emergency, please remain calm and follow the instructions of the gallery staff. Um, please turn your phones to silent. Um, so here's how tonight will run. Um, Shane and I will have a chat for about 45 minutes and then we'll open up the floor to questions from the audience. So if there's anything that I leave out or avoid, that will be your opportunity to ask him. <laughs> um, and then afterwards, Shane will be out in the foyer signing books, um, which you can buy from the UBS stand out there. Can I just ask, how many people here are not very familiar with Shane's music and his story? Okay. All right, so there's, there's a few of you. Okay, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Um, so Shane Carter, singer, songwriter, frontman of bands Board Games and the Double Happies in the 1980s, Straight Jacket Fits from the late 80s to the mid-90s, and by far his longest-running musical project, Dimmer. His most recent work has been released under the name Shane P. Carter. And now we add to his resume, book writer. Dead People I've Known is a fantastic achievement. I'd like to put it up there among the best of New Zealand rock memoirs, um, except that I couldn't actually think of any New Zealand rock memoirs. <laughs> um, Graham Brazier, maybe? Matthew Bannister? He, he, he didn't write. Graham Brazier didn't write one, did he? Um, Dave McCartney. Dave McCartney. Yeah, I was, yeah. you're right. Um, can anybody think of any others? Because Shane's is right up there with them. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> um, but I would, what I would do is definitely put it up among the best of portraits of growing up in a cold city at the bottom of the world that I've read in recent years. Um, the book starts in Dunedin through his childhood and teenage bands, moves through Auckland and America and Europe, and finally circles back to the town of his birth. On the way, we encounter the dead people in the title as friends and family members fall away, most notably his parents and his bandmates, Wayne Elsie and David Wood. There's tragedy in this book, but there's also heart and wry, ironic humour and yes, even poetry, though Shane might deny it. I urge you all to buy a copy after this and have Shane sign it for you. Um, so Can I just I, point out, sorry yes, Rachel to inter interrupt, that's right. I was actually born in Christchurch. Were you? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Much to, much to my chagrin being a Highlanders <laughs> man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, my uh, parents, um, yeah, they ran away to have me. So they were in Dunedin mm. and they ran away to Christchurch to have me. So I was actually born here, yeah. Okay, well, that's right, I was born in Hamilton. Yeah, right. Oh. We all outrun our past. Right. Um, so I first met Shane in about 1987. 
Um, I, was, I was 16 and I was a teenage girl in a rock band. Um, and reading this book, much like watching the recent Chills documentary, um, has been a real nostalgia trip for me, um, as I'm sure it has been or will be for many people in this room. Um, we were talking in Auckland at the Writers' Festival last weekend about how when you publish a book, you get media interviews if you're lucky, you get invited to writers' festivals if you're really lucky, um, to talk about the subject of your book. And when the subject of your book is yourself, you end up talking about yourself far more than you probably would be comfortable with. Um, so I know this can be quite uncomfortable sometimes, but as quite a guarded person generally, my first question to you is, why now with this book, and what possessed you to write something so personal? I've been asking myself that question for the last two months, Rachel. Yeah. Oh, no, not really. Um, I always wanted to write something, and um, I, uh, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed words, and I was a journalist when I was a kid and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, even being a songwriter and writing lyrics, you're always dealing with words. So I always wanted to write something, mm. and I also enjoy non-fiction as well, and I thought, well... Uh, you know, the, the thing about non-fiction and documentary uh, making is that the most boring subject can be, you know, um, can be a really compelling mm. story, you know, if it's told really well. Um, has anyone seen that? What's that Japanese movie about the sushi makers? I Dream of Jiro or something like that? Is that what it's called? Do you know that one? Well, it's just about these master sushi makers, and, and it just follows them in their day, and they mm. just go, you know, they go and select their fish and they make it. Yeah. But it's this beautiful film, and it's just sort of this bigger thing about passion and commitment and skill, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, was a great documentary about a parent, you know, I thought, well, I don't really want to watch people, watch people making sushi, but once I started watching it, it was brilliant. So I thought, oh, that's a really great example of... Um, an apparently sort of, you know, not mundane, but uh, not spectacular subject, you know, mm. being made to be really interesting. But uh, anyway, um, but with my book, um, yeah, I uh, thought, yes, well, I've got a story to tell. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got given this batch out at Anamoana, right at the head of the Dunedin Harbour, and uh, splendid isolation, 10K from the closest area. And I just hunkered down and started writing it. Yeah. yeah. But you're right, I am quite guarded and I am quite private, so it's mm. kind of quite funny that it's kind of all out there like that. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I'm not, really, uh, I'm not really afraid of that. Right. Yeah. And so what was the process for you? I mean, what was your, what was your starting point for, for writing the book? Uh, it was very difficult. I had, my play, I had my batch or my crib out in the middle of nowhere. And, um, yeah, I started writing. It took me about three weeks to write the first paragraph and it was still mm. shit. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> It's a terrible paragraph. Like all creative things, wear their, quite often wear their labour, and those yeah. that first paragraph wore a lot of labour. Mm. And um, yes, yeah, so I was just sort of uh, getting into the flow, really, and um, uh, oiling the gears. And so, yeah, I wrote for uh, quite a few months, and uh, then I left it for quite a few months. Mm -hmm. And I, when I left it, I, th I found it hard to go back to it because I, I thought, oh, I don't think that's actually any good. And I went back and read it, and it wasn't actually any good. Mm. And, um, yeah, but the thing is, is that, you know, f when you fail, that teaches you what you can do. So, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I said it earlier about that thing about um, that failure is just, you know, it's part of the creative process. And I know that with writing music, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you fail all the time. And, uh, well, that's how you learn, isn't it? That's exactly right. Mm. And um, I can remember, you know, like I've, I've done a lot of work with Nick Rowan, my engineer, and we've just sort of got the saying in the studio, you know, don't be afraid to suck. And we yeah, suck away, you know. Yeah, yeah. Suck hard. Yeah. Just don't bring it out in public. 
And they do say with the, with the so-called shitty first draft is that just get it out because you can't edit a blank page. Yeah, that's right. It's just doing, you know. And uh, uh, yeah, so yeah, I got into the sling where I just got up every day and I just did it, you know. And eventually um, it started to shake itself out. Most importantly, I found my voice. And uh, when I first started writing, I, you know, I thought, oh, you know, I'm writing a book, inverted commas and capital letters. And, mm. uh, you know, it was very um, self-conscious and try-hard, basically. And these big flowery sentences that led to nowhere. And when I left it for a few months and went back to it, that was the main thing when I looked at it. I thought, I, I can't actually hear myself in here. Mm. I can't hear my voice. So um, I just stripped it right back. And so a lot of the writing, and well, in fact, all the writing in the book is actually really spare, but mm. I, that's the kind of writing I actually like. Yeah, yeah. And so it's quite often the kind of music I like too, you know. I, I'm not really into over-embellishment or embroidery mm -hmm. or um, overt lyricism, even though I've got nothing against lyricism. Yeah. But I actually well, like it. I'm yeah. sorry, but your writing is lyrical. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> because to me, lyrical's not about flowery writing. It's about it's about capturing, you know, a particular moment or a person, you know, with with as few words as possible that will actually bring a whole world to the to the sentence to the reader. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Rachel. And yeah. I think I think that's what you do as well. So that's why I mentioned the poetry. Oh, that cool. You wouldn't Thanks. agree, maybe. Well, I think that also comes from lyric writing. Because yeah. I've been writing lyrics, you know, since I was a kid, since I was 14 or something. And that makes you really aware of the way words bounce, um, how they flow, um, you know, what um, what interrupts the flow, etc. So it gives you a really good idea of rhythm. Mm. And I just found um, that a lot of the um, lines I wrote were basically the same length as a lyric. Right. And uh, also that, that thing of writing to the rhythm and just even taking out one syllable, yeah. you know, just to make the thing flow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think some people don't realise that um, often with writing prose, you're thinking just as much about cadence as you would be if you were writing poetry. That's exactly right. Well, you know, lots of writers, I was reading Janet Frame, she's saying that, you know, she read everything out aloud. You yeah, know? yeah. And so that was a really good tip, actually. Did you do that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really useful. When I went back in that first flowery draft and I read it aloud and it was like, <laughs> I was so bored. After <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. sometimes with writing you can, you can put so much into a sentence because you think you're, trying, you're painting the picture in, every, in great detail for someone so they can see it. But actually it's what you leave out in, that enables the reader to inhabit the spaces with their own imagination and see things better. That's exactly right. It's the same with music as well, you know. Like, uh, lots of musicians say, you know, that the space between the notes is as important as the actual notes, you know. Mm. And I know that as a musician as well, that just sometimes playing nothing is the best thing you can play, you know. Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, exactly, it's the same with uh, writing, you know. Yeah. You can insinuate and, uh, yeah, you know, you've got to credit the reader or the listener with some intelligence, you know, mm. they can fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. And I also think when you make stuff too, even though sometimes you do need to be specific, when you make it too specific, it almost becomes fascistic because it leaves no room for the beholder to invest themselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's the thing, you know, with songs, I know, and with writing as well. I guess with writing, maybe not so much because it's a, you know, my personal story, but um, a lot of people have said to me when they've read that book that they can really relate to aspects of it. And it's the same with music as well. You've got to leave a space for the listener to put their own experience yeah. into it so they can relate to it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can paint a picture of a whole household by mentioning, you know, the smell of beer or the, the smell of um, granulated Nescafe. That's right. <laughs> or the smell of stew and Brockville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so when you came to it, were you, 
were you immediately writing it, imagining that somebody was going to read it, or did you just think, right, I'm just going to throw it all down there and then I'll worry about that later? Yeah, God, no, if I'd done that, yeah. Mm. Um, you know, I was horrified when it was printed. I thought, oh, God, people are actually going to read that. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, um, no, I didn't. I just sat down and wrote it, and it was really easy because I was, you know, miles away from anybody just yeah. to be really cavalier with everything, you know. So, yeah, I just wrote it all down, and uh, I just told my story, and the good and the bad, and yeah. the highs and the lows. <laughs> and uh, I didn't actually find there was a lot of medium, actually. It was either the highs or the lows. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but... Um, Which makes for great dramatic tension. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> but I, that's just what I found, you know. Mm. It was, um, I, I guess most you know, mundane things, you don't, they don't really stick with you for any reason. And, you know, I just wrote about... My whole thing when I was writing, just one thing led to another and I just wrote what was still in my mind or what had stayed there, you know, even apparently inconsequential stuff like the old man I used to see wandering around mm. Brockfall, you know. Right. Walking up and down the big hill, you know. And were there things that, that, that came up that you had forgotten that you remembered? Um, yeah, look, when you go back and look at your life, it's kind of like this forensic re-examination, really. It's like returning to the crime scene, you know, mm. and you have another look at it and um, things become apparent. Yeah, it was really interesting, yeah, you know. Right. And the way, and things would connect and I would understand motivations that I hadn't understood before. And it's like, oh, Your I Your own or other people's? Uh, both, mm. yeah. It's like, oh, okay, that's why that happened. So it was really interesting for that. It was almost a, a form of therapy, actually, because you sort mm. of put all that down and I kind of felt like, you know, I've put all that stuff down and it's there and I can move on. You know, I really had that feeling at the mm. end of the book, yeah. Well, a lot of people write diaries for that reason, but thankfully yours is much better more entertaining to read than someone's diary. Perhaps. Well, I write about the diaries I kept in, um, uh, in, in this book, and I kept diaries because I thought that I might write a book, mm. but they're just so insanely boring. And, um, yeah, it's just the same stuff every week. And, um, yeah, so there wasn't much help. Did, did, did I thought, you... Was I thinking that 25 years ago? Man, I'm still thinking that today. Yeah. Did, but did you get, get any nuggets of things, you know? Were there, did it help jog your memory about events and the order of, you know, timelines and things like that? Reading the diaries? Yeah. No, I actually didn't refer to the diaries once. Oh, right. I burnt them. Okay, yeah. that's really interesting. And um, I thought, thank God I don't have to carry these things around with yeah, me right. anymore. But I did actually, I kept scrapbooks right from my very first gig, so... Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's pictures of for, them in the book, actually. Pardon? There's pictures of them in the book. Oh, right, with editorial comments all through right. them. Right, yeah. <laughs> which is great. Uh, yeah, so they were, they were good. They gave me a good timeline. They were good for yeah. that, yeah. Um, so Emily Perkins gave a wee blurb on the back here which says life, 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 music, 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 girls, girls, girls brilliant, funny, painful, reflective and raw so that of course is a tribute to Viv Albertine's book Clothes, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys Oh, I didn't know that Oh, so I haven't read that <laughs> Did you not know that? No, you didn't wonder where that a really good book, yeah. yeah Well, I was going to ask you if you'd read it so clearly you didn't yeah. um, <laughs> But Sorry. It's, it's fantastic, by the way. Yeah, um, I it was good. So, but I understand you did read some other rock memoirs in preparation, and I just wondered um, what were you looking for when you were reading them, and which ones were the best? I didn't actually read any rock memoirs. I just read memoirs, actually. Oh, okay. I, I actually read quite a... Um, I, read, I actually read a lot of New Zealand stuff. Yeah. Um, just because I really wanted to see what other people had made of um, growing up in this country right. and living in this country. Yeah. And um, I was interested in that, and... One thing I thought about my story beyond all the music stuff and all that kind of thing is 
just growing up in Dunedin, um, you know, I grew up, um, uh, you know, in quite a working class area. Um, my dad was Māori, so I was um, this kid of mixed mixed race as well. And uh, I just thought that um, I had, I hadn't actually read a lot of stuff about that. Right, yeah. I, I, in fact, I haven't, well, at least Janet Frame growing up in, um, in Otago and stuff. Uh, yeah. But I haven't actually read that many childhood, or maybe Brian Turner, mm -hmm. uh, childhood reminiscences. Yeah, of, right. uh, I read Brian Turner's one, Janet Frame. Yeah, I, I just read a lot of New Zealand stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, and... And what were you looking for in those that might have helped you? Uh, just what people made of it, made of growing up here, yeah. Uh, the two that I... The two... Um, uh, memoirs uh, that I enjoyed most were Janet Frame's autobiographies, which I thought were absolutely amazing, mm. and um, a really beautiful book that Richard Ford wrote about his parents called Between Them. Oh, right. I thought that was a beautiful book, and mm. what I really loved about that was that um, it was just apparently really simple and direct, yeah. but beautifully rendered, mm. and um, uh, yeah, yeah, I thought that was a great book. Um, and, yeah, but just to get a vibe, really. But um, one of the best of pieces of advice I had, I went to a writers' festival a couple of years ago, and Ashley Young, who became my editor, she was on the, um, she was on the panel. I was talking to her afterwards. In fact, it was the first time I'd met her. And I said, yeah, I was, I was um, wanting to write a memoir. And she said, oh, I think you should write a really impolite book. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And none of the memoirs that I'd, I'd read had been particularly impolite. Right. And why <laughs> Especially you, the New Zealand ones. Why do you think that is? Well, um, uh, well I think in New Zealand especially, um, we can be very retiring, we can be very afraid to stick our head up. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, you know, those exact reasons, Too you know. Polite. Pardon? Too polite. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, the politeness isn't necessarily a bad thing because, um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, New Zealanders do have a decency to them, yeah, you know. Yeah. Actually, um, this, this sounds weird, but I'm going to quote my dad now, Michael King, but he, he was a Janet Frame's biographer and he talked about the compassionate truth, um, which basically is, is telling the truth, but to be compassionate towards the people that, that you're telling it about, um, does, that, does that concept kind of ring true or yeah, do you totally. think maybe that's what the, the politeness is about? Um, look, you know, as far as being impolite goes, I just thought, you know, I'd just be impolite yeah. and, uh, yeah, just, sorry, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, um, just call it how I saw it and yeah. be cheeky yeah, and yeah. Um, say things that people wouldn't dare say. Yeah. I wanted it to be—I wanted it to be the opposite of an all-black captain's autobiography. Right. Yeah. And uh, Which so are usually there's by no New Zealand writing. champion going on. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, you know, but I, I really wanted to write something from um, I don't know. It's a terrible term, but the underbelly or something, yeah, you yeah. know, that doesn't really get written about that yeah. much and tell those kind of stories. But so there was the impoliteness there, but as far as um, compassion goes, yeah, totally, you know, my major, that was the major thing writing the book, yeah. was how to be fair to other people, and especially um, people who are no longer here. Mm. And um, yeah, uh, the, the conclusion I came to is that, you know, I haven't got the right to take anybody's dignity, and yeah. um, I can't guess their motivations, and I can't guess what they're thinking, you know. So uh, how to balance that and express your own experience with these people 
while still being fair to them mm. and not taking anything away from them that you haven't got the right to take. That was my biggest moral yeah. conundrum writing the yeah, whole book, yeah. actually. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to be fair to people, you mm. know. And the biggest thing was that... Um, you know, I don't actually hold animosity against very many people, you know. Uh, oh, there's a couple of record company people I shove <laughs> yeah. it to. And, uh, but, yeah, you know, that was the thing I got out of the book. You know, we, we all carry our crosses and, you know, we've all got our failings. And, most, you know, I, I don't think there's actually very many, many inherently evil people in the world. There are some, you know, mm. just through chemical averages. But, um, you know, <laughs> I think people are mostly well-intended and just trying to get along. Yeah, and yeah. The characters or the people that I write about in my book are those kinds of people, mm. you know. I report their failings, I report my failings, but, mm. um, you know, the people whose failings I report, you know, I still love and respect them, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, actually, I, I'd like to maybe talk about some of those people because you just referred to them as characters and that is kind of how they are. I mean, they're, they're they very strong characters. Yeah. Um, so we meet members of your family and I know that you've said you don't want to... Um, what was the term, psychoanalyse yourself for the casual listener. Um, but I'd love the audience to get a bit of a taste of some of your family and how you portray them. And I really loved Aunt, your Aunt Nat. Oh, yeah. Can you just talk about her a little bit? Okay, um, Aunt Nat, she was my eccentric aunt. Um, my whole family's pretty eccentric. I guess most fam everyone's got a family, right? And uh, Aunt Nat, she was... Um, She'd had a really tough upbringing and, uh, you know, my mother and all her sisters grew up in foster homes and they're taken away, uh, taken out of the family home and their dad was abusive in many ways and all that kind of stuff. So Aunt Nat was quite damaged in a lot of ways from her upbringing. Um, she had psychiatric issues and all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, chain smoker, uh, terrible cups of coffee, uh, really weak instant coffee, half filled with cold water. Um, uh, she'd smoke, she, we, she, my, the spare bed was in my room, she'd be three feet away from me, chain smoking, drinking, <laughs> cups of coffee, and... Um, while you were asleep in bed? And while I was awake, yeah, yeah, all, right. all hours, all through the <laughs> entire night. Um, she used to change her name all the time, she called it, her name was, um, in fact, I don't even know what her name is. No, her name was, uh, <laughs> she was calling herself Natalie Wood there for a while after the actress. Right. And um, so I said, oh, how are you doing, Aunt Nat? She said, my name's not Aunt Nat, it's Vanessa. <laughs> so I go, oh, okay, oh, Aunt Vanessa, how are you doing? Oh, my name's Aunt Nat, don't call me that. Um, so she could be quite grumpy and curmudgeonly, but um, I got on with really well with her and, um, uh, well, for someone who I used to hide from in the streets and pretend I wasn't at home when she came around to visit, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, you know, I had a real fond spot for her and um, despite her eccentricity, she was actually a very intelligent person and, um, you know, quite cultured in her own, in her own idiosyncratic way. Mm. And you always had a real soft spot for her, yeah. yeah. Well, you do, you do write about her compassionately, as you say. Um, but also beautifully, I mean, there's one moment where you say she, had a, she used to blink rapidly. And you said it reminded you of a bird hovering, eat, beating its wings, trying to settle on just one thought. I just thought that was a really lovely moment. Thanks, Rachel. That's one of my favourite ones too, yeah. yeah. Um, and just your, I just, maybe a little bit also about your maternal grandparents. Um, because I really love the way you describe your grandmother, Mary, um, even though it's really tough and sad. But you, you describe her as vague as a small grey cloud, like the wind might blow her away. And you remember her as a silent, meek lady shuffling round her stove. And there were so many women of that generation who were erased by their husbands, I think. Um, and Bob, your grandfather, is a really, really brutal character. He is an old bastard, yeah. yeah. 
but you you kind of um, you kind of make peace with his assholeness, I suppose. <laughs> Do you? I mean, you know, it's it's on him. It's not a it's not a family secret. It's not family shame. It's you know, it's his. It's that's you yeah. know, yeah. With the stuff I talk about in the book, he was the individual responsible for that stuff. So it's his shame. Yeah. yeah. Because I think I think we're we're lucky. Our generation is that we don't we don't carry our family's shame. Whereas I think those previous generations would, they would take it on take on their parents and their grandparents. You what you think your generation doesn't carry your family shame? No, I don't think so. Right. No. Yeah. I think my grandfather. <laughs> you're very sceptical. Who carries their family shame? <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very honest. Oh, very honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah, but what you were talking about—how you hadn't you hadn't seen um, a lot of this life portrayed in, in New Zealand and memoirs—I mean, some of that stuff with your grandparents—it actually reminded me of some, a bit like Frank Sargeson, you know, characters who who he did write about that kind of working class, and he 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 wrote in the New Zealand vernacular as well, which was you know quite unusual at that time. I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah, I'm reading Frank Sargeson. And so that's um you haven't yeah no it's it's great um. And I guess that reminded me of the, you know how you decided to take on take write it in your own voice as well rather than taking on this kind of hoity-toity, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, because I, I noticed that a lot of writers in New Zealand that it sort of seems quite um, middle class and quite a university kind of academic kind of you know a lot of the writers come from academic backgrounds, mm. and yeah, I actually wanted to write something that was more visceral and non-academic. Yeah, and I guess you know like you say there's sort of as nice words and stuff, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really wanted to write something visceral and mm. almost anti-academic yeah. in its basic appearance, yeah. Mm. But also with some smarts. Yeah. And I also think that thing where you write those really simple, what I like, about just going back to those simple sentences, is that, and what I really tried to get going in the book, is that just to have those apparently innocuous phrases that when you go back to them, they actually carry a bit of weight. Mm. And, um, you know, that's the same with songwriting as well. You sort of have these slogans and... If you go back and think about them, you think, "Oh man, there's you know so much ambiguity to that, yeah, or yeah. Uh, you know double meanings." Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I really love that with lyrics, with um, <coughs> lyrics um, apparently meaning one thing, but they're actually about something right, else. Yeah. And sometimes lyrics are like that anyway. You set out to write, or writing is, you know, you set mm. out to write something, and then at the end you realise you've written something completely different to what you, th you thought it was. Uh, what I refer to in the book as ambushing yourself, mm. you know, creatively. Uh, cr and sometimes you don't realise until someone points it out to you as well. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, there, there's a line that you say about when one of your girlfriends left you and you just simply said, I sank to the bottom of the river. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> that's, that's it. It's just a very simple sentence, but it, you know. Right, it, that's it, pretty it much sort of, the feeling, sort of yeah, in that so instance, yeah. Um, so this is a book about Dunedin in many ways. Um, mm. You know, as, as you say, like, it's unsympathetic unsentimental and not nostalgic about Dunedin in the 70s and 80s. No. Um, it seemed to be, it was characterised by boredom and violence. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit about what Dunedin was like in the 70s and 80s? Um, and just, just your sense of growing up in the general mood of the country at the time, because you do reference the Springbok tour, Muldoon. Yeah, look, I'm sure many people have had happy childhoods. <laughs> <laughs> But look, I actually look back at that time, it's quite dark. Mm. And, uh, you know, maybe that had to do with what was, you know, I was a kid and what was going on at home and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But uh, growing up in Dunedin, um, uh, 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 it was so cold. And um, 
Yeah, it was just very conservative, you know, and Dunedin's always had that. It's kind of had its liberal side that it's encouraged by the university and all that kind of stuff and sort of, you know, cultural thought. But um, there's a real hard-ass side to Dunedin as well, and I guess there is a hard-ass side to a lot of New Zealand. And, you know, I, I, you know, I also say, say in there that Kiwis play it rough or, or Kiwis play it rough or playing shy and modest or something, mm. you know. And it was kind of like that. Um, yeah, look, you know, as kids, we, well, as a kid I got beaten up all the time in Brockville. Mm. And, um, yeah, Ashley, my editor, she said, you're just always getting hit in the head. And uh, I thought, oh, am I? And uh, <laughs> then I went back and realised, oh, I'm always getting hit in the head. And uh, Yeah, problems. possibly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was rough as guts, actually. And, um, you know, when we started forming bands and got into the whole punk rock thing, you know, we got beaten up in the streets for that too. People mm. came along to our dances and beat up everybody there. They would have beaten me up, but I wouldn't get off the stage, so they'd hang around and get bored yeah. and then they'd leave. But, you know, you know, look, these grown men would actually form lines outside our dances and clock these kids as they came out, you know. Yeah. And, um, well, I was, yeah, I was really shocked by that. Oh, we saw other people too, but to us that was normal. Apparently it was normal in Christchurch as well. Yeah. Um, you, I, heard people, I heard Russell Brown talking about, um, you know, the Gladstone when bands would play there and, you know, you would just come out of the Gladstone just expecting to get beaten up. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd be walking down the street in Dunedin and a car would stop and some adult male would get out and just walk up and punch me in the face. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that kind of shit went and on all the time. Why, why do you think that kind of thing went on then? And, and what's changed that it doesn't happen so much anymore to young people? Why does New Zealand have an undercurrent of violence? <laughs> um, that's a big question. That's a big question. Yeah. I don't know if I've got the answers. Uh, one thing I think about down south or, you know, from Dunedin, because I'm familiar with the people from there, I, I can remember I was, I was down there, because I, I lived in Auckland for decades, actually, and I was down in um, Dunedin for um, Peter Gutteridge, who's a Dunedin musician for his um, tangi, and uh, uh, I can remember it was freezing and these people were standing around in singlets and um, virtually singlets <laughs> and shorts. Mm. I was like, oh, man, they really breathe them tough down here. Mm. But I think they do. And I think the climate has a lot to do with it. Maybe, um, you know, from the European people anyway, that, you know, they um, come from settlers. Uh, you know, man, to come and settle this country, you know, um, you know, places like around the peninsula down there, you know, mm. that'd be really hard, you know, hard yakka, you know. And, uh, you know, Māori people can look after themselves too. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. I just think um, there's a... Uh, the sort of um, maybe this basic hardness to to our um, to our history, and um, despite we, we don't get taught it at book, there's a, we don't get taught it in books at school. No, uh, but you know there's a lot of violence and a lot of blood in our land, mm. and uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to get you to do a reading now because. Okay. Let's inject some humour into the things. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of humour in this book, um, and it's often at your own expense as well. Um, so, you know, board games, first practices, drunken encounters with, you know, visiting bands and things like that. Um, but we've, we've chosen a reading just to give you an example of what you can expect from okay. the book. Um, Rachel chose this part for me, actually. I wanted, I wanted to actually read about Abdullah the Butcher, the wrestler. But, um, oh, you could... Oh. No, nah, this is all good. <laughs> um, so this is about... Um, so at this point, we're at high school and we're in the fourth form and we've just discovered punk rock, but we're not actually sure what punk rock is. And um, so, uh, yeah, we decided to do this at a school camp. 
So, yeah. I'm chanting one of my songs and throwing sausages at the audience. Three classmates chant in unison, standing there beside me. We're performing at the Talent Quest at the Totoku Lodge in the Catlins on our fourth form end-of-year camp. We're doing a song called Mentally Dearranged, which I've written about the community. I'm going to have to quote the lyrics here, sorry. Um, and we'd actually do guitar noises between some of the lines, like... <laughs> so... Today's public are a bore, thinking it's like the Second World War, but we're the good guys, they're the crowd forever, trying to kick us out. Now, here's a good example of a scandal line with the right amount of um, syllables. Well, in my influenced mind there is no doubt. <laughs> that they're mentally deranged, mentally deranged, they make me sick. Mentally deranged, mentally deranged, want us to quit. <laughs> We accentuate the make me sick line with vomiting sounds and we chew up wheat bix so we can spew it out like chunder. <laughs> In verse two, I foam toothpaste from my mouth like a froth frothing rabid dog. I also have half a dozen forks poked into my shirt which go with the sausages we're chucking at our classmates. <laughs> Joining me in this a cappella effort are Jeff Harford and two other boys from our class, Daryl and Barry. They are our Saturday night drinking friends and they've agreed to join Jeff and me in this, our debut gig. We've settled on the band name Board Games because it's better than our original name, NZ Commies. <laughs> We're spitting foam, vomiting cereal and throwing processed meat because this is our concept of punk. Our performance at the school camp causes a few ripples, strong enough to get us in the end of year magazine. Punk at KVHS, the headline says above a photo of us posing in front of a blackboard where Board Games is written in chalk. Jeff and I have the most committed punk poses. I'm wearing sunglasses, a Sid Vicious wristband, and a tie around my neck that doesn't match my T-shirt. My I appear to be illegally chewing gum, although I don't have any gum. To my right, Jeff strikes a man-machine pose that is extremely new wave. Daryl and Barry are less convincing because Daryl has a ski jacket that could belong to a disco bunny. <laughs> and Barry is in his rugby jersey. <laughs> Barry tries to compensate for this by staring vacantly at the floor. For the article, we've given ourselves punk rock names. I am Peter Putrid. Jeff is Jeff Nasty and Barry is Basil Spares. <laughs> Daryl has called himself Charles Prod after the country and western singer Charlie Pride. <laughs> so then we just jump a wee bit. And then, so after, we were encouraged by our performance at the, at the camp. And um, so then we thought, okay, we're actually going to play these songs for real. And um, so I decided over Christmas that we'd actually form a band. And uh, this is where Wayne Elsie um, uh, uh, walks into the scene. When Wayne heard that Jeff and I wanted to form a band, he said he might be interested. His brother had taught him 24 guitar chords and he was currently in negotiations for a bass amp that would cost him 10 to $15. <laughs> he also said we could jam in his parents' basement if we wanted, down there with the tins of paint and stripper. A jam. The word wobbled with the weight of legitimacy. Unbelievably, we were in the Elsie's garage two weeks later. Wayne had set up his new bass rig, which was a 10-watt box with the guts of a transistor, but the amp had double channels where I could also plug in my mic. Jeff's full drum kit sat regally in a corner in front of the Elsie's car. Charles Pride was at our first practice to help however he could. We started with an abstract noise. My voice sounded like it was coming from inside a box and a cupboard through the buzz of the 10-buck amp. Wayne didn't know 24 chords. He didn't know one. <laughs> but he still stared ahead, defiant as Sid Vicious, deaf to the uselessness of his thud. He already seemed comfortable that it was everyone else who was badly out of time. 
I was riffing on a song I'd called here in the workshop, which was about remedial classes for the mentally impaired. I ate minted flies and stick pins in my eyes, it announced, predicting a lobotomy. Charles Prod joined me in the chorus, which we chanted while pacing about the garage, two teen drongos stinking up the space. Here in the workshop, we're in the workshop, there in the workshop, there in the workshop. <laughs> Charles became inspired at this point and picked up a wrench and started hitting it on a bench. I fell in with him like a baby or a monkey and began bashing a hammer too. The sound of workshop noises went on for 15 minutes while we tried to find a shape for the song. We failed and got disillusioned and tried rich bitch instead, but we failed at that one too. So we went back to workshop and hitting the bench because that was our only plan. <laughs> You do eventually learn to play instruments, um, self-taught, of yeah. course. Um, and then there's a bit here where, you, later, not very long after, where you, you suddenly discover that you've got a song. And what is it you say? I'd been given a virtual superpower and had, and had a flame to shoot from my fingers. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was... Uh I read an excerpt really early on when I was writing the book, and I, I read it somewhere, um, some writers have entered me. It was a couple of years ago now. But um, this other writer came up to me and he said, oh, he said, I've always wanted to know what that felt like. And then I read, because I, you know, I've been in bands since I was a kid, I thought, oh, right, actually not everyone gets to do this. Right, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, I really wanted to convey what it was to actually be a performer and mm. to play in a rock and roll band, mm. you know, and just the feeling it gave you. Mm. And... Yeah, because to me, that's really natural and it's just, you know, what I do. Yeah. But then I thought, oh, actually, a lot of people don't get to do this, you yeah, know. Yeah. So I really wanted to convey that. And yeah. that feeling, you know, when I thought, oh, man, I've got a flame to shoot from my fingers and yeah. a virtual superpower, that's exactly what it felt like when I played my, you know, my band played my first ever song, or, you know, played a song of mine for the first time, you know. Mm -hmm. It was... Um, it was an amazing buzz, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. It was like the whole universe opened up for me, and I really wanted to convey things like that. I really wanted to convey what it was like, the weirdness of actually standing up and playing in front of people, because mm. um, it's weird. It is. You know? And well. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a really weird one last week. I was at the Auckland Writers' Festival, and I came on, I had to sit there, and there's this huge spotlight, it's in this huge space. And John Campbell started doing the speech behind me, and I had to be like this the entire time. It was really weird. Anyway, and your um, face was huge on the And my face was huge. You, you know, it's quite horrifying actually. And he just, you know, John goes on a wee bit, doesn't he? So I was just kind of like, bless him. And we yeah, love him. I is great. But yeah. yeah, that was weird. He, but yeah, he, I wanted to convey all that stuff. Yeah, and even just you know what it feels like to to rock. Yeah. You know, and when you rock, that's just the best feeling in the world. And, you know, there's lots of times when you suck, but yeah. when you actually triumph and rock, yeah, that's amazing. And do you still get that feeling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I play music, you know, yeah. and I still get that. And every time I play music, you know, that's what I aspire to. And, you know, you don't always do it, but when I play music and when I write music, um, I really try for... Um, uh, to some transcendent space and some connection with the other, and that's the best way I can put it, you know, because I do believe music's like that. Music grabs, just grabs this energy that's floating around, you know, and uh, I do think it's... A, I said to another musician, oh, you know, something about the other, and I said, oh, I believe in the other, and he said, well, of course you do, you're a musician, and I thought, oh, that's exactly oh, yeah, right, yeah. you know. 
It's about that's you know something mystical and magical and mm. connecting to that. And you know you don't always do it. In fact, you know blazing gigs are kind of in the minority. But when you do that, um, the audience can feel it and you can feel it. Mm. And it's kind of like this energy that is, you know, the, the meeting up of you and the audience mm. and the sort of separate entity emerges. And yeah. that's the power of music. You know, music is mysterious and magical and um, conveys things that you can't articulate otherwise. And, um, yeah, so uh, when I play, I always try to find that place. Mm. And it's about cutting out all that other stuff, you know, like... Um, Closing your eyes and connecting to the song, you know, and uh, yeah, so yep, that's and you know, I still get that feeling. You know, I, I don't even need an audience to validate that feeling. You mm. know, I don't need to put it on record. You know, I can play that with my band or with one other person in the room, and we know it happened. Yeah. And you know, that's that's good enough for me. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you've talked about um, music as time travel, and how has that helped you with, in the writing of the book? Hmm. What do you mean? Uh, referencing? Yeah, so um, just for example, you said that you can't hear the cleans point that thing somewhere else without feeling the heat of Coronation Hall and the anger of the bogans waiting by the door. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. So listening to music works like a time machine. It puts you straight back. I think a lot of people find that, yeah. You know, we've all got, uh, you know, that thing about music. What is it? I've got to say in the book about it. It's the second descent as far as memory being mm. a memory trigger. I write about it in the book too, where just some bits of music when I play it, it transports me back to where I actually wrote it, mm. and I can actually see this. I can actually see the room, or I can see the street that I was walking down when I thought of that, you know, yeah. that, that bit of music. So um, did that help me in the book? Um, not really, no. Mm. I, uh, but you know, stuff like when I wrote about the clean tune, of course, yeah, yeah and. Yeah. I think we all do that. We all have these um, associations with bits of music, which mean a lot to us because we associate them with, you know, they conjure up that picture in our mind's eye. This is time. actually a multimedia experience reading this book because you'll, you'll keep wanting to, to go and have a listen to the song that Shane's talking about at the time or, or go and track down the video of um, Death and the Maiden by the Villains to see Shane dancing like an idiot on the chair in the corner. That would be the last <laughs> one I'd look at. Um, but also... Uh, you talk about your mum as well and the, um, the album that she made a couple of years before she died and that there was a little documentary made about it. And so I went and watched the documentary oh, as well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's... What was it like for you having... And, and also your, your dad appeared in the Evolution video not yeah, long yeah. before he died as well. So what was it like for you having, having this record of your parents at that stage in their lives? Oh, it was awesome, Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad. My mother made that record about two years before she died, mm. and yeah, it kicks ass, that record. It's called the um, Reconsidered by the Erica Miller Experience. Mm -hmm. uh, she was 64 when she made it. Um, she'd been a singer her whole life. Uh, she was in a bad marriage. She gave up um, singing for about 30 years, mm. and uh, she actually sung at my dad's tonguey, and uh, we thought, oh, man, uh, you should make a record. So the whole family um, organised it, put together the band for her, and um, her new husband, Laurie, financed the record. And, uh, yeah, I love that record. It's all cover versions, but um, the only common denominator, common denominator to the material is that Elvis Presley performed the songs at one point or another. Mm -hmm. We all love Elvis. And, but the thing is that he sung the entire American songbook, so there was, you know, thousands of songs to choose from. But the best thing about it, it kind of reminded me of those late Johnny Cash albums, um, in that 
she claimed each one of those tunes. You know, every one of those songs, I knew what she was singing about, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, even though they were cover versions. And, uh, you know, it was beautiful uh, having Dad in that video as well. He uh, came up to Auckland and filmed that a year before he died. That's really special that he's, mm -hmm. a, that he's in that. But um, yeah, one thing you were saying also about the music, you know, is that I did actually really want to write about the music because mm -hmm. the thing is, as a musician, um, someone in the New Zealand Herald writes three paragraphs about your latest record and yeah. that's all you get written about mm -hmm. your music. And, um, or people can write about your music in quite a... Um, quite often, a, a, not a, sometimes a superficial way, mm. but also just sort of skimming across the surface and quite often sort of getting it wrong. Mm. So I actually wanted to write about the music because I thought it'd be interesting to hear a, a musician writing about music. Mm. And also, um, you know, a lot of, I've been going through this classical music trip, but um, reading the books, it's just, oh, it's, it's um, you know, like it's all theory and all that kind of stuff and it's notation. I can't actually read music, so mm. to me it's just, you know, right. uh, but, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I really wanted to write about my music and also about other people's music mm. that I love as well. Mm. And I thought it'd be really interesting to hear it from the musician's viewpoint, yeah. yeah. And also just to talk about um, my work, for want of a better mm. term, and what inspired it. And I thought, well, if anyone's into my music, well, they'll probably find this interesting. And, yeah. and, and talk about my work with sometimes with a depth that I don't actually get the opportunity to talk about mm. it in that way, you know, it's all, uh, you quite, like I say, quite often skimming across the surface and yeah. it's, you know, for my music it's something that I, I, you know, I've spent years doing, thousands and thousands of hours, that's what I actually do and yeah, yeah. you don't actually discuss your work. Yeah. And so I thought that would be good too, yeah. I, I mean, that, that was, for me, one of the most interesting aspects of the book, it's almost like a, a critical biography that somebody would write about a musician but you've written it yourself. Um, and sometimes you're your own toughest critic as well. I mean, you basically go through each of your albums and you say, well, this song was about this, but it was a bit shit. But, you know, this song is really fantastic. But then you go into what are the whys of it as well, and you actually, because um, I was going to ask you, but you've, you basically answered it, is, is, it, is, is this the, the writing that you wish that you'd had about your own music from, from other people? You, you, you talk about how people don't never ask you about the craft of songwriting when it's no, something that you do all the time. That's right, yeah. That's what's been interesting doing these rounds too. Mm. No one's asked me about the music at, at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that's all right. Uh, You've got the questions right here though. Yeah, all oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so yeah. what was the question, Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, did I, is that how I wish other people would write about it? No, not necessarily. Well, not, not that you wish they would write about it, but you, that you feel has been missing from, from previous kind of... Right yeah, well, you know, look, without being a wanker, you know, I put so much thought into the, so into the songwriting. Like, yeah. for instance, I'm really conscientious about my lyrics, for instance. Yeah. Um, and, like, I work, I, I drive myself nuts with the lyrics to get them right. And to most people, they don't even hear the lyrics. You know, when yeah. I listen to a rock song or a pop song, I don't, you know, I don't know what the lyrics are. I, I know the, what the chorus is, but it can be years until I find out what the lyrics are. But, um, you know, that's how much, uh, I don't know, I, I try to make it sort of layered kind of work that's got depth to it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not that I want to be recognised for my depth and all this kind of stuff, but, um, uh, yeah, there's, I don't know, there's just some smarts to that music that I, uh, that I just don't know if it's been acknowledged. So, you know, and the stuff that rocks, you know, I'm quite happy to say that it rocks because it does rock. Mm. And, um, but, you know, there's some, lots of stuff that sucks too. And, 
Um, I think with my particular back catalogue, you know, I've always struggled to get it in the studio. You know, live I can do it all the time, but um, recording to me is quite artificial. And um, uh, um, uh, tense, and I, I don't actually enjoy it that much. So, uh, yeah, you know, I actually re regard my back catalogue as reasonably patchy. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, as far as the records go, yeah. there's great moments and there's moments that aren't. You know, sort of failed experiments, mm -hmm. but. You know, conversely, live, I, I, I'm always confident that I can do it, yeah. But it's really fascinating seeing you writing about, you know, about, about why something is fantastic, not just... Yeah, sure. Know, ...that it is. And other, you know, other people's music that I write about as well, you know, mm. yeah. And like I say, as a musician, you know, who actually understands what it is to be a musician, mm. you know, why should it always be newspaper critics who, whose opinion is sort of held up as, you know, fact? And yeah, yeah. Uh, when they are covering it quite often and yeah in a kind of a superficial mm. way um, as, as a musician you know I, I do think you've got some insight into the craft yeah but yeah, but, again, as, a but, but, but as a human being mm. you've got an insight into the craft yeah. you know it either kicks your ass or it doesn't yeah but that's what a book can do that a few columns in a newspaper or you know can't that's right it, yeah. and there is wonderful music writing yeah mm. yeah I was really psyched to meet um, Alex Ross last year oh, he, right, you know yeah. the who wrote does anyone everyone know who Alex Ross mm -hmm. is so he's a, I think he's one of the best music writers in the world, and he wrote this incredible book about 20th century classical music called The Rest Is Noise. And um, that dude, he's, uh, he's the New Yorker critic. Mm. And, um, yeah, I can remember just reading this one piece that he wrote about Handel, and, oh, it was just so beautiful. And he described it as, you know, oh, I can't even remember what he said, but it was something about the Goethe, you know, it was just sort of the Goethe as itself. It was all structure and no sort of elaboration or, or something like that. It was such a beautiful piece of writing. Mm. So when I met him, you know, I said, oh, man, the bit you wrote about Handel, and, uh, uh, you know, he wrote it 12 years ago or something, but, of course, he remembered it. But, you know, I said to him, I said, oh, look, when you read that kind of stuff, that's as inspiring as the actual music. Mm. And it is, you know, great writing is like that. And, it's, you know, and the great writing that I've heard about, you know, that I've read about music, you know, it really racks me up, you know. Mm. It's like, oh, man, I want to go make some music, you know. So... Uh, there are great writers and they're inspirational, mm. you know, as well, yeah. So you said you hadn't read any rock memoirs recently, but maybe that's where you might find some of that writing that you... Well, I have read quite a lot of right. rock memoirs, yeah. yeah. But just in my study for uh, this thing, um, no, I read one from an Australian musician that was um, really encouraging because it was so terrible. Was it Tim I Rogers? Thought, <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't his one. Uh, I haven't actually read um, Tim Rogers' one, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, you know. Look, I'm a. Um, I've, I've always been into rock music, and I've always been a, a nerdy swat as far as the history of it goes. So yeah, you know, uh, autobiographies. Al Green's autobiography is really good. Mm. Um, Peter Gurnock's books about um, Elvis, they're incredible books. Um, uh, Alex Ross's books. Uh, any other offers of great <laughs> rock books? Um, well, look, on that note. Um, I'm going to see if anybody wants to ask any questions. Um, we do have a couple of microphones on each side, just so that um, we are recording the session, so it would be great if you could wait for a microphone to come to you. Uh, is there anybody who has a question? I have other questions if nobody has questions. but um, Yes, there's some up the back there. Hi, Shane. Uh, my name's Greg. Um, Hi, Greg. I said if you don't mind, just two short questions. Uh, you talked about um, some of those early songs, well, actually your pre-songs, I guess, at the camp. Well, what was your first fully formed song that you would consider your 
first song, that was my first question. My second question was, when you are writing songs, do you sometimes get musical passages or sounds or melodies coming to you that form part of the song or the start of a song? Is that, does that happen to you? Yeah, well, look, I never write the lyrics first. Um, I know a lot of people do, but uh, yeah, I always write the music first. And so usually it's just a little riff or a little refrain. Uh, the interesting thing, to, if you're a musician, is that I really recommend recording your little refrains because what makes them good is that um, there's something wrong with them or there's a mistake in them, and that makes them different, which is why it makes it stand out. But then when you go back to play it, you just play your sort of by rote kind of stuff. And so uh, the kinks are what really make uh, a song interesting or a riff appealing. So you're actually getting it wrong. That's um, uh, the start. And then, um, yes, yeah, so I usually have a riff, and then I usually find a progression for it and uh, somewhere else for it to go musically. And by that point, you know, it would have suggested, just the tone of it would have suggested, you know, something, the tone or the emotional content or whatever. And, you know, sometimes I'll keep little <coughs> scrapbooks, a uh, little uh, notebooks and just phrases, you know, something that people, people will say. See, the thing is about crea creativity, when you're not inspired, you think, oh, I've got nothing to write about. But when you are inspired, you realise there's shitloads to write about, mm. you know, and uh, inspiration is around you all the time, you know, you've just got to be open to it. But, you know, it, it comes in and goes out with the tide. So, yeah, um, so, yeah, I start musically and then I write the lyrics. Uh, the other question, the first song that um, I ever wrote that the band ever performed um, was a two-and-a-half-minute two-chord song called Frustration. I'll check guitars. And uh, that was about my crush on Gillian Humphreys, and who never noticed me. And uh, I was very frustrated. And uh, in many ways, 14 and frustrated. So, yeah. Frustration. Awesome. I think we had another question up here. I'm going to pass the mic along. Kia ora, Shane. Um, I've noticed you go from a Saturday afternoon at the Captain Cook Hotel over 40 years ago to being here at Puna of Waifeto. And I'm just wondering how much have you noticed the diminishment of our cultural cringe on your journey? Uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, look, I've really noticed it. And, you know, like when I started... Um, you know, even as a kid, I can remember that if it was made in New Zealand, we automatically assumed that it wasn't any good, mm. uh, whether it was television or films or music. You know, in our own minds, we thought it was second rate. And uh, I guess with um, you know TV, maybe it kind of was because you know there's no budget, so it was sort of on sets that were falling over and all that kind of thing. And uh, there probably wasn't much. Um, I don't think we really had that much of a show reel as far as our films go as well. They, you know, I don't, they don't even know if had, that many had been made. Uh, musically, um, you know, I always thought, you know, uh, what was the year? It was um, 1989 or something, and I can remember the Straight Jackets were up for the Music Awards, and the, but the best band that year was the When the Cats Are Away. Mm -hmm. And I've got nothing against When the Cats Are Away, all the individuals in it, but they specialised in 70s cover versions, and they were voted as our band of the year. That's 1989. So, then again, 1989 is bloody ages ago now, wasn't it? <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's what was going on. That's about 40 years ago, right? Uh, um, yeah, but there was, you know, and 
one thing I really noticed, but then again, you know, there's always been people doing great stuff in this country, but it's just, you know, they don't actually get any acknowledgement or they don't get heard, seen or read, you know. It's always interesting. I was reading Robin Hyde the other day, you know, she was writing stuff in the 30s. And what she was writing was so prescient and um, it was amazing. And um, uh, so, you know, the people have always been there and that's just humanity. There's always going to be people doing interesting shit, but it's whether you hear them, you know. But uh, just going back to the cultural cringe thing, yeah, look, I really noticed that. And um, uh, just in our sphere, and even when we were growing up in the, in the 80s, we were aware of what was going on musically, but we were going out to see each other play, you know. That's what was kicking our ass, you know, going to the Empire and seeing the Clean or the Chills or the Verlaines or whatever, you know, they're really early incarnations. And um, so that gave us confidence about, who, about our creativity and about who we were and the confidence to express where we came from, and, um, which I think is the essence of any creativity, actually. And... Um, yeah, and now, you know, of course, the world shrunk. You know, we're all part of a global community now. And, you know, when we started touring, it took three weeks for a letter to get back from London when we sent it. But, you know, now you can just communicate straight away. Um, you know, like uh, Skype is Star Trek, right? You know, if you'd seen that 20 years ago. And uh, so, but yeah, you know, I think we've got enough of a track record now that we've had successful films. Our writers are getting recognised overseas. So I have seen that disappear. And... Um, you know, I still think New Zealanders can be really harsh on, on each other, and you've just got to read the comment section and stuff.co.nz and that kind of stuff. It is, it's fucking harsh, you know? And, uh, um, uh, but that cringe and our inferiority complex, you know, yeah, I really do think that, that has shriveled, you know? And I think uh, we actually do appreciate that where we live is, you know, even though we're doing our best to ruin it in, in our own quiet way, um, is a really unique lo location and uh, that our view on the world because of where we are from is actually unique. It's a unique perspective, you know, and uh, as it should be. Mm. Another question anywhere? Yes, we've got one down the front. Oh, and one over here. Hi, Jean. O over here. Over here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Hi. Not a particularly probing question, unlike the last one, but what musicians do you admire or have you admired over the years, and who are you listening to at the moment? Um, look, I love all forms of music, and uh, I can remember telling my mum when I was 13 that I was going to listen to nothing but punk rock for the rest of my life. <laughs> and um, I was wrong. And... Uh, yeah, look, uh, I find that actually really hard to say because um, I love music from all over the place, you know, whether it's from the 16th century or, you know, whatever's happening, you know, I know in Queens right now, you know. Um, music is too big to say one genre is right and there's, uh, there's inspiration from everywhere. I only got into classical music in the last six years. That's completely blown my, my, my mind, you know? Uh, you know. I love it. You know, I love Schubert, I love Beethoven, you know, and... Schnitke, you know, some of the 20th century stuff that's it's so far out. And, um, but you can learn from every form of music. There's something to learn. And um, it's the same with any great art. You, if you look at it or, or ponder it, you know, you can learn something from it, you know. And um, so I feel that way with music. And I also say in my book that I reckon that most of my vocal melodies come from really shit radio songs from the <laughs> 70s. And so, you know, you just grab from wherever and um, take it in and then it comes out as you. But, um, yeah, look, I can't say... I love music from 
all over, from every genre. The thing I love most about music is uh, true, truth, true music and music with soul. And you can tell whether the music's got soul. And you can tell whether a performer's got soul as well, you know. And um, when I know that someone's for real and that they're actually performing their truth, which, which the great performers do, um, yeah, I believe it and I'm moved by it, you know. And uh, there's a lot of dross and a lot of mediocrity and a lot of people aiming for there instead of there because there is what gets you on the radio and all that kind of stuff. But um, one thing I really loved about the classical composers when I, lived, when I listened to some of those geniuses, I thought, that's right. You know, you don't pitch your music here, which being an artist in New Zealand, you get encouraged to. Oh, if you do that, you'll get played on the radio and you'll make some money and be able to buy a house. But... Now, those people are actually going for that transcendent thing. It's like, oh, right, music is this amazing thing, but it should be pitched there, not there, you know? So even if you can't get there, you realise what you should be aspiring to with your work, you know? So, um, yeah, that's the music that inspires me. Yeah. Thank you. We have one down here. I think this will be the last question. Um, I really loved your descriptions of being born in Christchurch, they, but it was so violent, like the Fawcett's delivery, and then you describe, um, you know, abuse of musicians in the streets in Christchurch, and the way you wrote it, it actually reminded me of Buffy the Vampire Slayer diving into the Hellmouth, and I, I just wondered if you still saw, saw Christchurch as sort of like Sunnydale, or has it got better? So, sorry, what is Sunnydale? Oh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I don't know Slayer. that, yeah. Cultural <laughs> thing. You're, you're, probably, you're too young. Um, it's... Um, Christchurch, the way you describe it, seems so dark, and I just wondered if you felt it had got better or worse. Well, I was a bit scared about coming here. I thought I might actually be <laughs> run out of town. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, look, uh, just for balance, I give Dreden rings. Totally stick it to Auckland. <laughs> Wellington got off. I haven't spent much it's time It's impolite with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, look, uh, okay, to be totally honest, I've always noticed a weird energy to Christchurch, and um, <laughs> I have. So it is and, the Hellmouth. Uh, pardon? It is the Hellmouth. Well, I don't know if that's true. You know, it is beautiful on a sparkling day. But uh, yeah, look, I have noticed a weird energy here. That's my personal feeling. I was born here, you know, and uh, but yeah, I don't really want to go into it too much, but I, fe I felt like what was in the book was actually quite prescient in some mm -hmm. kind of ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, has anyone got any theories about why Christchurch would have a weird vibe? Am I imagining that? Or? It was the what, sorry? Is that right? Is that right? Didn't know that. Right, and what era are we talking about? Right. Well, there we go. Thank you very much. <laughs> Look, I'm sure if you live here, you know, if you're living here, of course, it's home, you know, and so there's, so there's, there's normalcy here every day, but just that vibe, I don't know. I always wondered, oh, is it the wind off the Alps? Is it being on reclaimed um, swampland? Well, I did. Or is it because it's flat and you just see the, you know, the, the wall on the other side of the street and that sort of drives you a bit nuts, or... I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> moving on. Sorry, Christchurch people. Uh, Moving right I'll along. I'll just skip my coat. Uh, yeah. um, but, you know, like, I, I write about Dunedin. You know, Dunedin's got a weird energy because the thing that's happening there is that you've got these hills and so the sky is really hemmed in and it's only a little sky and it's really turbulent 
And that's got to that's got to screw with your psyche because you know um, Auckland is completely the opposite. That's this white wide screen IMAX sky, you know, mm. and uh, it's kind of lazy and sort of goes on forever. So your environment is tight. You know, your physical environment is totally going to affect your yeah, I'd agree a your psychological state of mind, mm. and um, yeah, and I don't know if you your life and if you're an artist, your creativity. I reckon, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be a, a bonus having that kind of dark energy if you're, uh, if you're an artist or musician or writer and you can channel it into something. Well, it's quite powerful, yeah, mm. it's potent. Yeah, and if you're talking about the other, you know, and energies and all that mm. kind of... I'm not, I don't consider myself hippy-drippy, but I do believe in energies. Mm. And, uh, yeah, with those energies sort of uh, um, smashing about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we talked about life, life, life. We talked a little bit about music, music, music. We didn't get to girls, girls, girls. <laughs> Maybe that can be after. <laughs> um, but let me tell you, you know, anything that we haven't talked about tonight, just please buy the book. You'll, there's anecdotes galore. You'll get to hear about all of the bands and the politics and the, you know, the, the band members leaving. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just a really fantastic read. And uh, I think there's nothing left but to thank Shane Carter very much for coming. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Okay. Oh, is that us? And thank you all for coming. And Shane will be out signing books outside. So we'll see you there. All right. Thank you.